Reconstructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, be the truth with triumph crown. Let the lands that sit in darkness Good afternoon. Welcome to the War Room. Bill Evans with Joel McDermott here at American Vision in Powder Springs, Georgia. Joel, welcome back. Hey, glad to be back, Bill. This has really been a long time coming, overdue, but there's a reason why in particular we're meeting with Joel again today, and that is the release and the early distribution of his new book, The Problem of Slavery in Christian America. I predict it'll be one of his best-selling books because his detractors will buy it. <laughs> but for those who are not following the play-by-play, Joel has been at the center of a lot of firestorms in the recent months and year or so uh, with the uh, earlier uh, release of the, Bo- the Bounds of Love. But in this particular book here, this is a pretty hot topic. You would think that it would be, we were talking earlier, so you think that if the issue of slavery and um, and specifically the the uh, institutional church's role, I presume, in, in its compli- you know, complicity, their their role in it, giving it moral cover, the, the cause of the war. The, I mean, we may get into some other things. <clears throat> if he gets too close to any of my idols, <laughs> we may have to we may have to break. <laughs> we'll sit it up as it ends the table. If that's no, okay. when we met last time, he sort of threw down the gauntlet, felt like he could successfully challenge uh, some of my views. And anybody who knows me knows I'm a big proponent of uh, secession as a biblical principle. But why this is such a timely book, uh, Joel is going to tell us uh, what his game plan is. And also, I think, because of the logical analogy between slavery and human abortion. That is there, definitely. That wasn't one of the primary motivations for writing the book in the project originally, but that certainly does exist. And, and, it, and it became stronger as I got into the project because the abolitionists are such an inspiration for a lot of the abolition that's going on today, and I think it's perfectly fitting, yes. Well, and not only that, but the fact that the institutional clergy class no doubt. has given moral cover to civil government and has abdicated its prophetic role. The roles of the churches are very parallel. And the arguments the church has made for not ending it overnight, slavery that is, are almost identical to the arguments churches make today for, oh, we, we shouldn't back any program that says call, for, call this murder or end it overnight or things of that nature. Very, very much parallel in those regards. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm just enough in the in the middle, so to speak, because I hear people from both camps and I try to listen to people. I may play the devil's advocate here. I may ask some personal questions that arise from Joel's explanation, but I really want to give the opportunity not to listen to me, but to listen to him talk about the book, why he wrote the book. Well, there's actually multiple reasons I wrote it. The first one would probably be because ultimately I'm going to do a book on a biblical view of criminal justice reform. 
Now, that doesn't arise out of a vacuum. That in itself has multiple reasons behind it. Uh, one of those always is that there is a biblical doctrine of what we what is called slavery. And that is a word, obviously, in our time and place and history and culture that you can't simply use. And in fact, you really can't even use it and say, hey, but I mean something different by it. Uh, because the history of slavery in America uh, has a virtual monopoly over that word. You know, that you can cry that's not biblical all you want. It doesn't matter when 99% of the culture thinks that way. You have to speak to them in a way that they understand. So, um, you know, we've got to find a way to teach biblical doctrine while... Just go ahead and do it, man. <laughs> uh, it's like ripping the band-aid off. Uh, you got to find a way to teach the biblical doctrine, you know, and, and, and honestly, the biblical terminology is Greek and Hebrew, so let's put it in terms of what, what, what the substance of it is. Would you call it indentured servitude or whatever? That's fine. Uh, my book actually deals with none of that aspect. My next one will. But it, in order to get to that, you have to deal with the historical aspect first. And so I, I began to read quite a bit about that. And the more I did, the more I realized how ungodly it was and, and, and how concerted concertedly racist it was. Now, a lot of people say, well, you just lost me when you said that. But go back. All you got to do is go back, read the first chapter of the book. Not the preface, but the first chapter. It goes to the, the development of the early laws for slavery. And within, within the first generation of the first blacks arriving in, the, in North America, they were custom-tailoring the laws to permanently enslave blacks and their progeny. And to create, actually, it had had a bunch of, of influences, and, and again, this is all in the book. But uh, it, it, making it so that a, a black black females were subject to sexual exploitation, uh, even rape, and the progeny, even if the father was white, and in many cases it was, uh, that the progeny would become mulatto slaves that the white fathers of these uh, offspring of black women would uh, not become part of the free community in any way, shape, or form. They encoded that in the law. And they did it by specifically by departing from our biblical common law tradition and applying the biblical law for chattel property to slaves. Okay, people... In the neo-Confederate movement and other, other not just just those, but other people that are sympathetic will say, oh, Southern slavery wasn't chattel slavery. You didn't own the person. It wasn't like Roman slavery where you could dispose of the person the same way you could dispose of an old dog or a, a cow or something like that. Um, but it, it wasn't quite that. Honestly, the more you'd study the development of law, it actually practically became something like that. But even, even if we don't consider that extreme of it. From the very beginning, beginning in the 1660s, they passed laws that were drawn from the laws for property in common law. And actually, they were Roman civil law concepts and applied them to black slaves. This had never been done before in the West, certainly not in the English colonies. Uh, um, this was the first time this was done. And it was done also in the islands, the Caribbean, and other places. Uh, if you want to see where it is said that black slavery in the West was chattel slavery, that's where you start, because it's explicit. They made an explicit choice to do that. And the consequences of that, 
precise pre, for blacks in general and mulatto offspring, but specifically for black women, was catastrophic. It was it was simply put, it was criminal and it was abhorrent. The church should have been crying out over this, and it didn't. Now, with by the 1730s, I believe it's documented in the book. The, the laws in South Carolina were specifically calling blacks chattel and property. So, so, so this is a non-issue. It's there. we got to deal with it. It was the more I began to read stuff like that, the more I began to see this was so evil. Okay, but what, what were the good people saying about this? And then I go back and I read what were the churchmen saying about it. And in most cases, nine times out of ten, the churchmen were supporting it or turning a blind eye to it. And not just turning a blind eye to it, but creating a theological justification for turning a blind eye to it. What we would call the two kingdoms doctrine was employed over and over and over. Oh, that's a civil matter. That The pulpit shouldn't be involved in that. Um, or they were overtly supporting it. Oh, well, Abraham had slaves. You know, Moses talks about slavery. This is okay. Um, Okay, but what about man-stealing? Oh, well, we don't really know whether they were stolen or not in Africa. Look, it's just an endless series of justifications and, and blame-shifting. Meanwhile, blacks are being herded like cattle, and in many cases raped, in many cases treated terribly, and uh, everyone just seemed to let it go because no one wanted to challenge it. The only people that did challenge it were early on were the Quakers. And, and again, again, this is all in the book, uh, some of the early Baptists and Methodists, but they changed their tune after the Revolution. Uh, so, again, this is all rambling, answering the question why I wrote the book. The more I began to read of the stuff, of the historical documents, and specifically of the development of slave law, and, and the historical reasons why the law developed the way it did, the more I began to see this is an atrocity. This is an atrocity, and we are to blame. That is, the church is to blame. And that is consistent with a lot of what we see going on today. Those of us who have preached against two kingdoms doctrine and the dangers of it for years now, and, and going back to Rush Duny for 50 years, a, a whole generation and a half now, those of us who have been part of that tradition cannot look at the history of the development of slave law and the church's role in it and pretend like nothing bad happened, pretend like we're not to blame. And we can decry the Westminster Wests all we want. We can decry all the proponents of two-kingdom theology and Luther's foibles and everybody else's failures in this regard. All we want. But if you don't go back and see our guys, our Southern Presbyterian guys, and Southern Baptists, Southern Methodists, many others, doing the same thing in relation to race and slavery. By the way, two separate issues, race, slavery and race then we don't have an argument. We, we can't stand here with any moral integrity. So I, I challenge anybody. You may have disagreements with me on particular historical issues, why the South seceded. Okay, we can still have that argument. I challenge you to read this book and pretend like the churches were not at fault. And I mean all the way up until the 1960s and beyond. That's reason one uh -huh. why I wrote that. <laughs> there are others, but go ahead. Let me jump in with two questions. I, I saw a question the other day in a thread were the Westminster Divines theonomists. Mm -hmm. And certainly, the whatever view of one kingdom theonomy that was existing at that time was far different than what's become distilled today as theonomy. 
I'm I'm wondering about the you know the the chapter before your epilogue. I think in your Bounds of Love, where you go into the mm. the, the Justinian Code. Oh yes, yes. And how how quickly and evidently without too much angst, the magisterial reformers mm-hmm. picked it up. And ran with it. The civil law. Yeah, the civil yeah. law. They didn't have to pick it up. That was the default. From Constantine forward, Roman civil law was the default, and the church's default to it was the default. So that when the reformers like Luther and Calvin came along, they made some drastic changes to church polity and sacraments and justification by faith and things like that nature. But when it came time to talk about the civil issues, uh, they basically fell back to the old default. That's why I say they quit reforming, basically, when they got to the doctrine mm-hmm. of civil government. Mm-hmm. So they just left that as the default, and it persisted. England was one place where it was considerably different, and the book I would challenge everybody to read, it's not a challenge, it's a great book, is Bryn Allen Winter's The Excellence of the Common Law. We carry this book in our store. Uh, it's a big, thick, about 1,000-page or more book. Uh, that details what the common law is and how it's different from the Roman civil law. And in English, Anglo-Saxon history, particularly English history, and, and thus, to a large part, American colonial history, it was common law, which was most, most, much closer to a biblical law basis. Uh, it, during the Norman invasion in 1066, of course, these Normans come over, they're Roman Catholics, right? Uh, and they bring with them uh, they're, they're, they're Franco-Normans, basically. They bring with them that culture, and they bring with them some civil law concepts. So the first thing they try to do is create a centralized state, and the outfall of that is called the Doomsday Book, or the Domesday Book, which was uh, basically a, a, the first census that the land had had in a long time. The king sent his agents around to every farm and house and village and said, what do you got? Tell me your property, tell me your cattle, I want to know how much it's worth. And then he taxed everybody from a central location. So you had this great centralization of government. You can see the contrast between what they had as common law, which was the legacy of Alfred the Great, up until that point. And those two things in English history have been in tension ever since. Uh, I did a lot of work writing on this when I published... Uh, the book of sermons that we titled God's Law and Government in America. I've got a lengthy preface where I talk about how English history and American colonial history had both of these concepts working at the same time in tension with each other. The one is basically admiralty law and commercial law, and it is an executive-driven law. It's always looking to open its own courts. It's always looking to circumvent juries and jury nullification and the common law rights and the bill of what we call the Bill of Rights and have its own impaneled uh, uh, executively appointed judge is what we call in this country administrative law. It's always looking to do that. When, when the king succeeded in doing that to a certain degree, uh, that was one of the major things that flipped our leaders out. Jefferson and those guys, Adams was, of course, he wasn't involved in the Constitution, I don't believe, uh, but, you know, those guys wrote extensively about these concepts. You read, one of the first pamphlets John Adams ever wrote is called On the Feudal and, and Canon Law, I believe, and it's him railing against what I'm calling the Roman civil law tradition 
and saying this is a perversion and it's the most evil, wicked thing. He said feudal law was bad. The, the church's canon law, which was Roman civil law, is bad. He said when the two get together, it's a serpent wrapped around the neck of society that, you know, that, that strangles everything to death. Uh, so these guys were aware of these concepts, and it shows up in the Declaration of Independence. And Jefferson, in one of those many grievances listed in the Declaration, says... Uh, you know, he has tried to. He has instituted a, a a system of courts, I believe it was, in a jurisdiction neighboring to us, that that uh, rejects our system of common laws and tries to institute a different system of law upon us, with the design of instituting the same thing here in our colonies too. And he was talking about the 1774 Quebec Act, in which the the crown. In the call in the province of Quebec nearby, had instituted civil law courts on behalf of the Roman Catholic Church, and our guys were saying, "Uh, uh-uh, no way, we don't even want that in the province next to us, especially done by our own crown." And they saw that as a, one of the grievances for which they would break bonds. So when it came to having those types of courts and laws and executive power in their government, they said, "No way." Well, this is what the entire history of, of slavery was built upon. You go back into it, and, and it was nothing more than merchant law. It was the creation of a public-private partnership called the Virginia Company, or at different times the, the different companies founded, corporations founded by the Crown, that were bringing the slaves over, and, and they were in cahoots with the big plantations and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of history there. What we have done by not addressing these situations head on, and our southern brethren are just as guilty of this, uh, of this as anybody, for not seeing these distinctions in law and uh, calling out our own errors in the past and addressing them head on. Uh, we have sat by idly while our own government has done the exact same thing in every area. In, in the federal government, certainly, we can all see that. Uh, Child Protective Services, the IRS, all of these government agencies, what we call the alphabet soup, you know, all of those are products of Roman civil law concepts. It is an executive-driven administrative law. It has its own courts. If the IRS comes to you with a grievance, it doesn't call for witnesses and evidence. It says, you're guilty. Prove otherwise. And if you can't prove otherwise, they'll take your money. That is the very same concept on which American slavery was built. And we can go back and see that, and we can see the development. And this gets back to the original point, why did I write this book? You can see this organically, historically developed. When the South wanted to control the slaves, it created its own patrols. When the slaves were emancipated after the war, they turned those patrols into local police forces. And they gave them the same powers the slave patrols had, which were broad executive powers to, you know, if they didn't like what you were doing and they wanted to arrest you, they didn't have to prove it. They pulled you over and arrested you. And, of course, this was highly racist during the Jim Crow era and Reconstruction eras. But those police, the original police forces in America, local police forces, came out of the old slave patrols. They're built on Roman civil law. They're antithetical to our Constitution. They're antithetical to the Bible. That doesn't mean, a lot of people hear me say that, they say, oh, you're against law enforcement. Not at all. I want law enforcement according to what the Bible says it should be. It needs to be there. We need Romans 13. Mm -hmm. We need civil rulers. But what we have is a product of Roman civil law, which is against the Bible, contrary to the Bible, contrary to our own Constitution. 
and is a product of our own old slave culture. So when people begin, and, I, and that's why this book is just the groundwork for that next book on right. criminal justice right. law. Right. When people can begin to connect these dots, then we can start talking about what does true justice and liberty and a free, free, free Christian society look like. But we can't do that if we can't confront our own demons and our own idols, and we're trying, continually trying to resurrect the South in whitewashed robes. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Go back and read the development of our own laws. Go back and read the development of our own institutions. Go back and look what those institutions did to blacks all through the 1920s, 30s, all the way up to the 60s, and even still today in some cases. And, and just to add on to that, today it's not just blacks. I think it still disproportionately affects blacks in many cases. But it's, a, it's everybody now. You know, a lot of the, the sympathizers say to me, how come you're not talking about the broader tyranny? We're, we're all on the plantation now. And I say, yes and amen. And the reason, big part of that is we can't go back and confess our basic sins mm-hmm. and complicity. And the other question I get related to that quite often is this knee-jerk reaction. Well, why are you going to talk about something that happened 150 years ago? It's over with. Get over with. Go Get over it. But it didn't just happen 150 years ago. Yes, the war ended 150 years ago. But then Reconstruction happened. The police forces were created. The law stayed in place. The racism got worse. The myths were created to justify, oh, the South never did anything wrong to begin with. Oh, our guys were all these angels who just wanted to help black people. And These are all myths. And in, instead of confronting our own demons head on, we've, we've, we've done all this. But, but the, the problems lasted. I mean, if you, were a, if you were black living in 1915 or 1920... You lived in constant fear. Uh, of, of course, many of them that were interviewed in the 1930s said, yes, we, we might have preferred it under slavery. And the reason they said that is because they were living under the KKK at that time after mm-hmm. the, the uh, 1915, the birth of America and the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean... Birth of a nation, yeah. yeah birth of a nation, yeah. It, hand it, in the White House, incidentally. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, all over. The, the, the terror that followed that for black people and, and then the continual oppression, the segregation. Uh, I can't believe people think, well, that ended 150 years ago. The, the legacies of it were terrible. And my grandparents, that's my grandparents' generation, the 1940s and 50s and 60s. You know, I just just buried my, the third of my grandparents died a couple years ago. I have one remaining. So my grandparents are still alive that saw this stuff. I begin the book with an anecdote. That, that kind of tries to bring this perspective home. Uh, and it was an interview that I did with, with a gentleman, I won't name him, uh, but uh, uh, I got to assist in this interview with a man named Lyon Tyler Jr. You probably know mm-hmm. that name. He's the, the living grandson of President John Tyler, who was our 10th president. John Tyler was born, I believe it was 1790. Okay, so to have a father... And son, and then grandson that spans this 227 yeah. years. By the now. way, John Tyler still not has still not had his U.S. citizenship uh, returned. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. He's the only former president who is not who was not a U.S. citizen. Okay. At the at the time of his death, because he he okay. sided with the Confederacy. Oh, okay. I, I got it. I got it. So so his grandson is born. It's a remarkable his, span of time for three generations. Yeah, so. yeah, has a child late in life, and then John Tyler, John Jr., I'm sorry, I'll get it out, Lion Jr. is born uh, somewhere in the 20s, I believe, and he's alive today in his 90s. And we got to interview him about five years ago. And the, the interviewer asking the questions, 
is talking about social change. There's a sweeping period of time. When your grandfather was born, our agricultural methods were not much different than ancient Rome. Uh, and in the, his lifetime, and then your father's lifetime, you had the invention of steam engines, all the way up to the telegraph, now then the telephone, electricity. Uh, then we electrified the whole nation. Now we've got cell phones. Look at this. This is amazing. He said, tell me one thing. Tell me one major change you saw in your lifetime that would have been completely unbelievable to your, to your grandfather and probably even to your father. What would be the most major thing that stood out? And he didn't even think about technology. He came back almost in an instant and he said this, the way we treat black people. To him, the change that occurred through the civil rights movement was the most momentous event that had happened. That's saying something. In all this time. Now, and, and that happened within his lifetime. It happened within my mother's lifetime and father's lifetime and certainly my grandparents' lifetime. So this is not something that ended 150 years ago. It's something we live with. And I was just hearing stories today of, of a friend of ours, a friend of a friend. Now, again, I won't name names because they haven't given me permission to tell their story yet, but I'll relate these as, as just kind of general anecdotes. Uh, of, of, a, of a black individual, black family, that moved here to Paulding County, Georgia, which is primarily white. And they moved into an all-white, mostly white subdivision. The, the only other white people in their subdivision, only other, I'm sorry, minorities in their subdivision is, uh, I think she said it was a Puerto Rican, or maybe it was a Costa Rican woman who married a white man. He said, she said the day they moved into their subdivision, the next-door neighbor hung a Confederate flag up in the window facing their house. Okay. Subtle. All right, whatever. She said, to this day, nobody in our subdivision has talked to me. They talk to each other. They talk to other newcomers that come in the subdivision. They talk to everybody else, but they won't talk to the black people. This is this, is this county, Paulding County. Today? Today. As in the past few years up leading up till today. The, this, this woman... <coughs> has been pulled over by a pol the same police officer in her community three times, never written a ticket, never, as far as I know, told what she was doing wrong. Uh, none of the other neighbors have experienced this, as far as we know, um, but she's singled out. Her husband is, like me and you, concealed carry uh, holder. She fears for his life every day, because if he's ever pulled over and he has to go through that awkward moment, are you carrying or... You know, God forbid the gun should peek through while he's reaching for his wallet. He has to explain. And the police officer, again, following the precedent set by slave laws, all he has to say is, I feared for my life. And he is completely exonerated for shooting someone to death. Mm -hmm. and, and this happens to blacks at a higher percentage than it does anyone else. So she fears for his life every day. And, and there are other anecdotes she could, she, she's related uh, pertaining to her children and whatnot the way they've been treated, and explicit things that have been said to them. This is just overt racism, and it's still alive and well today. You know, these are honest, hardworking people that pay their bills, don't mm -hmm. have any criminal record and stuff like that. So it's just abominable that we can't even listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had a conversation. Of course, I'm a driver, and I've got a radio that's got about a 15-mile range. <laughs> and so everybody within 15 miles of my location, if they've got their radio on, they're going to hear what I say because I'll talk over them. I, and that's by design. Mm 
And we had a conversation. There were a bunch of guys, white guys, black guys, hurling insults back and forth. And I basically came on on the radio and said, I think black people have good reason to be suspicious and to be angry. I said, they're profiled every day. And they were treated abysmally. And we talked about this. A generation of blacks has been imprisoned and turned into slaves for the prison industrial complex. And uh, I said, and the police department is the machine, is the mechanism that feeds the prison industrial complex. And as soon as I came on and said that, all the angry black drivers immediately calmed down. And they said, finally, a guy who understands. Yeah. And I I hadn't said anything that anybody who watches the news couldn't put together, but they don't put it together. And they really do. And and, and listen, I can't understand, really, because I've never walked a mile in their shoes. I I, I grew up in the I grew up in a a segregated society. Mm -hmm. You know, they had black schools and they had that side of town and we had a name for it. And, yeah, there wasn't a lot of racial tension because <laughs> the, there was a social strata. There was a, essentially a caste system that had been set up. And as long as you sort of knew your place and you knew where you could come up to the line and where you couldn't cross over it, you, there, there wasn't much tension. But the issue of slavery and racism, mm-hmm. uh, I, I want to address that after we come back from break. But before we go to break, I want to ask you uh, uh, one question. Well, I've heard rumblings that you had an agenda other than the one you specified, mm-hmm. that somehow you're carrying water for liberals, leftists, Marxists, and ne'er-do-wells of all kinds, and that you're, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing and an enemy of the faith and blah, 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 blah. How dare you uh, disagree with Dabney or Thornwell or Whitfield or mm-hmm. Edwards or any of these other guys? But the question I want to know is: We look at the at the body of Christ. We look at the at the evangelical cross section of America today, and it's pretty clear that you have. Obviously, there's some overlaps, perhaps in sort of the happy clappy evangelical middle, but you have a black church and you have a white church still to this day. Mostly, yeah. Where I visit sometimes in Clemson, it's a large PCA congregation. I know I've known the pastor since he was for he got out of seminary. There's a black fellowship that meets in their fellowship hall. They extended it to them to let them meet because they didn't have a facility. Now, my suspe- I don't want to I don't want to judge anybody's motives, but Jeff Davis, who was a champion Clemson linebacker when they won the national championship, is the pastor, and the white pastor, a friend of mine, oh dear, <laughs> is, is, is loves Clemson because they went to Clemson. He was an RUF uh, okay. rep on on Clemson, so. I don't know that I don't know that Reformed University. Fellowship. Yeah, yeah. I don't. You're right. I don't know that Jeff Davis's role as a Clemson champion had anything to do with the fact that 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 fellowship was offered that space. But what's interesting is that about once a quarter they have a joint service, uh-huh. and it's always much more awkward for the whites than it is for the blacks. The blacks are fairly unrestrained and very gregarious and 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 uh, and, and ebullient in their worship. It's much more expressive and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, more holistic. And you know, Jeff will get up and, and preach, and it's a very different style of preaching than than the white congregation is used to. Mm-hmm. And it's comical watching how uncomfortable. The white congregation is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, I it, when it comes down to just styles, uh, I can understand that. 
uh, and some of that's tradition, other things. But here, here's the deal. You and I would, would know this very well. Part of that problem is what we consider worship to be. If <laughs> you, know, you say, why can't blacks and whites worship together? And it's not awkward. I say, well, if you had a the comprehensive view of what the Bible says worship really is, all of life, uh, that wouldn't be an issue. Yeah, okay, so we come together for meetings, and the songs we sing have different styles. That doesn't bother me if you want to hold your service at 2 while we have others at 12. That doesn't mean we're a divided brethren. Right. Uh, but can we work together on solving problems of charity and education? Well, that's the question, that because it seems like I mean, until, we, until, we, until we cross this bridge... <laughs> yeah. There isn't going to be working together to solve serious problems. And we've got an increasingly large number of, of, of brothers and sisters who are reformed and theonomic and postmillennial who are, who are minorities. Well, and, and Bill, the, the example you gave with the truck drivers talking on the, the CB or the radio, um, do you still use CB radio? Do you yeah. still call them that? Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, the, uh, that example is the right one because a lot of the, the problem is a refusal to listen to begin with. I mean, you can't have any relationship if you don't have communication. Your, your marriage is going to fall apart, and your wife is going to feel unloved, and she's going to have an emotional breakdown if the husband never listens to her. Okay? The same thing's true if you got two friends, and one has a grievance. He may be wrong in what he thinks the grievance is, but if you don't want to listen to him, forget it. And then that starts a chain reaction of polarized hatred. And, and animosity that just goes on forever. So that discussion on that radio would continue back and forth, bickering. Well, you don't know this. Well, yeah, well, listen to this quotation from this guy, and oh, yeah, well, this you just got want a welfare check, and you want this, and you want that. It just goes back and back and forth until you sit down and listen. So, until somebody, and this is where manliness enters it to me. It's not having the argument that's manly. It's can you shut up and listen and bear what you might think is an insult to you. Can you bear that for 30 seconds or 30 minutes? Can you bear to carry that, that little bit of a burden? That's manliness. At the end of that period, you may not agree with him, but you may have earned the guy's respect. And you may have won him over emotionally, which as much as we think emotions are, you know, that's not a comparable reason and scholarship and argument, it still drives 80% of what human relationships are about. And, and it will shut down a conversation uh, before uh, before anything will. And then once that happens, you can't bridge that any other way. I say, be the guy that enters that and says, you know what, I think those guys were wronged. And I think let's talk about it. That's why I'm not afraid at all to sit down here at this table with a group of black leaders and say, you talk to me about reparations. I don't support a program of government-sponsored reparations. I don't. I don't think there's any way I, I ever could. But I will sit down and listen to what they have to say about it forever to get the issue on the table so then we can start talking sense. Okay, what is it you're angry about? What is it you think you're owed? Who's owed it? Let's talk about it. Put it on the table. I want to listen. Because I think at the end of the day, and I use the analogy, it's in the epilogue of this book, uh, is the, it's, it's the Good Samaritan. Um, you know, the guy that comes along is not the church leader. They're not the, the people with the titles. They're not the Levites. They're not the government leaders. The guy that comes along and helps him is simply a brother in Christ who's from a different race. And he's willing to give of his own substance and time and possibly reputation. I mean, who is that dirty, filthy lowlife who's actually going to reach out and touch somebody of the other race and, and give them money? 
You know, the, the, just think what other people are going to think about the guy. I mean, I got a whole sermon, basically, is what the epilogue is on this point. It's private action and private reaching out. That's the restoration. And if there's restitution to be paid in in God's economy, that's how it's going to be paid, is by people reaching out, making relationships, listening, talking, helping. I'll, I'll just end this little part with this 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 point. Uh, our friend Traveris Tut, who writes articles for us on occasion, he's a, a black preacher and and, and he, he's a businessman too, down in uh, Jacksonville, inner city Jacksonville. He talks to me about some of these issues. And he wrote an article for us a while back that says that was about missions. You know, why are so many churches intent on sending money over the ocean and they're ignoring the mission field that's in the inner cities right here? You know, why would you guys reach out and help us? with education or with church planting. And some of the comments that came back in our articles, and, and these aren't from the racist guys that follow us and some of the, the, the you know, the, the, the critics and opponents. This was for some people that I would not have expected it from. Said things like, you got an entitlement mentality. Who do you think you are? That I don't owe you anything. And the moment I saw that, it just broke my heart. Because it means the only way that we've got to solve this problem is failing in the hearts of our people. And that is through individual outreach, charity, and giving. Nobody's calling for a government program. Nobody's calling for an entitlement. But you know what? You do owe your brother something. Paul says so. Mm -hmm. Owe no man anything except to love. And if you love your brother, why would you not want to give your money that you can give to help them found a Christian school in the inner city? Mm Uh, and so that's just kind of a beginning of a discussion. We'll there. get and we'll talk further. I, um, and I want to take a break so we can have um, the good folks down there in uh, Covenant Community Schools um, give a spot about their apprentice program. But even though it may not have been uppermost in your mind when you wrote the book, I think we all should begin to pray that this book is a a plank or an important part of the bridge that may begin to tell our brothers and sisters of different ethnicity that we're serious about listening, we're serious about repenting, mm-hmm. and we're serious about moving forward together. I think that's the catalyst. That, that, that That's the point. Whether it can be a catalyst for what needs to happen will remain to be seen. Uh, and I think some of those guys, some of our black brothers and sisters have already received my efforts that way. And they're kind of waiting to see, okay, what effect does this have among a broader white community? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, white people immediately get uncomfortable when you start talking about the white Christianity, uh, white Christians. Well, and, with that and, goal in mind, yeah. with that goal in mind, I'm, I'm much more enthusiastic about Gary Norris' suggestion. I think this needs to be talked about. Not, not just the book, but the topic needs to be talked about. And it needs to be talked about by theonomists, yeah. not, not United Methodists or Unitarians. Well, let me, let me plug myself a little bit there, then, because I think that, that is the reason that this book is important, as opposed to a lot of other books on the topic. It's because there's not a theonomic answer. In those, there's not a theonomic angle. I'm not preaching theonomy through this book other than quoting historical sources. But to me, this, uh, the, the unsung hero, and he, he wasn't a hero because nobody listened to him, but he should have been a man by the name of George Keith, who was a Quaker, who wrote the first published critique of American slavery in our history, in North America. 
and that was published in 1693, which is very early, in Philadelphia. He, like I said, he was a Quaker. But it didn't read like something you would expect from a Quaker, at least not as we've come to believe it. It read like you would expect it from Gary North, or from myself, or from a theonomist. Because it was five arguments, it spanned about four or five pages in modern print, and each one of those arguments is theonomic, directly from Old Testament law. Uh, and he, you know, it's the basics. I mean, he, but then he applies it to what was going on. Uh, you know, no man stealing. Also, treat the immigrants among you that by the same law. Well, who's treating the the Africans among us by this? And then he goes down the list. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's Moses. It's basically theonomy applied to the issue of his day. If people would have listened to him in 1693, the atrocity that was American slavery and racism would never have happened. We would have never had this discussion. Uh, of course, they didn't listen to him, and, and so that was a problem. But it, uh, when I came across his tract, I was like, "Wow, this this is like this looks like I wrote it." You know, <laughs> this is what I would have said. So uh, yeah, there was theonomy being applied at the time. It's just a lot like today. Not many people want to hear it because it's costly in terms of personal sacrifice. All right, we'll take a break and we'll come right back. Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. All right, we're back with Joel McDermott. We're talking about uh, his new book, The Problem of Slavery in Christian America. Uh, uh, something that I've said, and Joel's going to address it a little bit here for us, and uh, then we'll try to, I might ask him, do some back and forth questioning, and then try to see if we can distill this into some applications. A lot of people like to lay claim to the motto, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. Mm-hmm. Always reforming, but it's always the other guy that needs to reform. Of course. I've asked the question, I think I asked it to you when we interviewed the first time, I asked it to Bo, and I've asked it to several others, is where are some areas where you feel like the reformers didn't go far enough? And you already mentioned one in this interview was in in terms of civil government. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is, is that regardless of the individual we're talking about, us, other men that we esteem whose books are on our shelf, we're all in the process of reforming. There are people who say that that slavery was 
the best thing that could have happened. And I've made a comment in a, in a, in a, in a post that, yes, we have the assurance that God will cause all things to work together for good. Mm-hmm. But the fact that God caused something yeah. to work together for good does not mean he justified the yeah. thing that he Absolutely. worked together for good. Absolutely not. Just because he worked something together for good doesn't mean it was a good thing. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, I've pointed that out many, many times. And, and my, my analogy for the Civil War is it was America's A.D. 70. If you had been a Christian living in Jerusalem in A.D. 70, with the Roman army coming in to destroy Jerusalem, would you have sided with the Jerusalem establishment or would you have sided with the Roman army? And it's a trick question, of course, because you wouldn't have sided with either one of them. You would have been a Christian, and you would have done what Christ said to do and flee to the hills uh, and go to Pella or whatever, wherever. Uh, you would not have wanted either side because Jerusalem was wicked, and it was suffering God's judgment for its sin. That sounds a whole lot like abolitionists today who can't side with the pro-aborts <laughs> or the incrementalists. And, and, and you wouldn't have sided with the pagan Roman army coming in that was just as fierce a tyrant. And, and Paul reappropriates the language. God, you are of purer eyes to behold evil. Why are you letting this Assyrian army come in and carry away your people captive? You know, why are you letting this happen? And God tells him, and he has to be reassured that the just shall live by faith. It's, it's not by taking either one of these sides. Both of them are evil. And in fact, the one invading to bring God's judgment is more evil than the one that's being judged. Uh, the Civil War was very similar to that. Well, in fact, if the if the if the South is as many people want to believe it, and as I think there's a semblance of truth to it, it was probably the most concentrated population of evangelical fundamental believers in in, in the world. And so yeah, that being that. that, well, hear me Go out. Go ahead. That all that does is exacerbate. Their guilt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, if yeah, they I, were as if they were as godly as historians want to pr- make them out to be, mm-hmm. all you all they've done is compounded their guiltiness. Yeah. It's like I asked you one time. I said, "What if the Southern Confederate government had basically uh, come out with a strong Trinitarian formula?" And you said it would just have increased yeah. their hypocrisy. Exactly. Uh, you know, the, the analogy I give like that is when I spoke down here at the courthouse to a group one time, I was like, I don't care if it says in God we trust across the building outside. You know, we have these fights over, does our currency say God in God we trust? Who cares if your dollar bill says in God we trust when it's printed by fiat money by the Federal Reserve? It's a corrupt system. It just compounds the guilt. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's the same problem. Uh, there's a lot to be said about the evangelical population in America at the time, being largely a product of the Second Great Awakening. Uh, but uh, th- there's enough in the book from, from early on, from the founding of America all the way up through. Um, so basically, just for you listeners, what the book does is the first, well, let's look here, first couple hundred pages or so. Um, let me, let me double- this is a history book, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, okay, the first 220 pages which is part one, is nothing but a history of the slave laws and the slave culture that developed in American history. And then I back up and start the story again from the church's perspective and ask, what was the church doing the whole time? And I'm quite honestly, from the inception of the very first ship that ever brought Africans to the shore here as servants and some possibly slaves, uh, that very first ship, there were Christians employed in that, breaking their own beliefs, acting contrary to their own beliefs. And and that just exacerbated all along. So 
uh, and so it's an indictment against the church in the last chapter in that second part on the church is uh, a fairly fairly good look at some of Dabney's stronger claims in defense of the South. So I go through several points that he makes in his defense of the South and use that as a representative of the slave defenses in general, which it really was, um, and and the development of the lost cause. So And then I give that, I, I tell what really happened behind and why some of the claims he said were wrong. And some of them, honestly, and I'll say this on, on this podcast, some of them I think on Dabney's part were conscious falsehoods. We don't need help fracturing an already numerically small movement. And we and we're talk about reformation and reconstruction. We want to be gaining more troops than we're losing. You, you posit some ideas as to why you think, and maybe you've identified at least two or three specific strains of the pro-slavery argument. Uh, you could say that. There are different degrees of it today. Uh, I, I won't try to take the time here to develop those, but I will say this. I think some of the guys here today that are ardent defenders of the South, to where you can't say much of a criticism at all, and uh, again, there's there's different strains of those. I think there are some where if you just said even a negative word about Dabney, they would blow up at you. And, and then there are others that are more measured. Uh, so I don't paint with a broad brush if I don't have to. Yeah, you're sitting across the table from a guy who's got a Confederate battle flag on his, on yeah, his arm. Yeah, I mean, this, this doesn't bother me that much. But uh, especially when it's tattooed. I mean, if you repented, what would you do? Go get laser surgery and have it removed? Come on. Um uh, if you had to repent, was my point. Uh, um, Thank you. Um, so I, I, I discussed this a little bit in one of the chapters in the book with the church, and that is that the, the Southern argument against, uh, well, first of all, against getting rid of slavery, the, fir- the first defense of slavery, and then the defense of Reconstruction, then the defense of segregation, and all, uh, it, along the way it was always tied up with the view of a culture war and a religious war. They always uh, pigeonholed abolitionism as a kind of liberal anti-Christian movement from the beginning. Transcendentalist Unitarians. And there were a lot of unorthodox guys involved in it. There were many guys who weren't unorthodox. But they always saw this, oh, this is the fruits of rationalistic thinking. Um, If they only knew how much their own culture had come from ancient Rome, that's a different story. But um, that's talked about in the book, too. But anyway... They tied those two things together so that, and and in classic with most conservatives in general, they start becoming more defined by what they're against than what they're for. So they start throwing the baby out with the bathwater and start defending themselves. And there's pride involved, of course, so that it becomes they start defending what is sinful and throwing the good out of the, the their critics along with what they see as evil. This continues all the way up until modern times, so that you have guys today calling me a Marxist just because I want to help black people and just because I see some truth in in the history of the slave law, as I have discussed. What I say, here's a good starting point for people to get the point, and it's not abstract. Do a Google search for Little Rock, Arkansas, School Desegregation, 1950s. I believe it's 53, 54. There's a major protest in Little Rock, Arkansas. There's a famous picture from that in which all white people are standing on the courthouse steps. They're holding signs. Do you remember what those signs said of these people in the 1950s who are arguing 
in defense of segregation. We're not talking about slavery here. We're talking about modern segregation. Don't let the blacks go to our schools. What did their signs say? The sign said, race mixing is communism. Race mixing is a march of the Antichrist. When you realize how how wed these two views were of the, the strong racist element wed to their view of orthodoxy of Scripture and how inseparable they are, then you can step back and look at our own situation. And you can see some people who think, well, McDermott wants to think, you know, listens to what the blacks have to say. Well, he's a Marxist. They're just perpetuating that same tradition uh, in, in a different degree. Uh, there's a lot to be said about that, but I see it today in politics. If you criticize, if you stand up for something like, uh, uh, well, let's just say, if you stand up and support Colin Kaepernick kneeling because he thinks, you know, in his mind, this was a way not to disrespect the flag uh, outright, but to also to honor, say, hey, there's a problem with the, in the black community here. That was what he, his explanation was. Uh, if you say, look, there's something to this, that's all you have to say is, look, there might be something to this, let's listen to them. And you are labeled a liberal and a progressive and a Democrat and a sellout, and, and I've been called a puppet of George Soros, and, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this stuff is laughable. But, but, but it's, people are deadly serious because they have put themselves inside a box where if you are not 100% on my side and my political side, you're a sellout to George Soros. Mm-hmm. And, and that is dangerous because this means you're not thinking in terms of God's law and applications of God's law. You're thinking in terms of tribal warfare. You're not on my group, therefore you must be 100% with the other group. Right. And step outside the Christian circles, and maybe even some of our you know, Confederate Christian guys can understand this. Uh, if you stand up against something that's obviously unjust, like civil asset forfeiture, I've had traditional conservatives call me a liberal progressive for stand, speaking out against that. Because how dare you criticize the police? Um, and, of course, that view is so historically ignorant, uh, it's, it's worse than some of these other guys. So there's a lot to be said about this, and it's, it's basic tribalistic thinking, which is what politics drives us into. And so I think a lot of these guys who fought a lot of these fights historically, um, uh, especially the ones that did it for, for, for decades now, uh, they think maybe too often in terms of, they're fighting political correctness. But in doing that, they're not allowing God's law. They're not allowing the fact that there are some good things that those people are trying to say and defend. Mm-hmm. And this is all I'm trying to say is when the church doesn't do its job in history, and we didn't in regard to the black man and the black woman, we didn't. And we not only didn't do it, we made it worse than we were the ones making it the worst. When the church doesn't do its job, God sends people in the form of judgment, to, ha- to, to take care of that, to fill that need. And that's why I've said many times, where the churches failed, the leftists just stepped in and, and won the blacks over. And today, you know, it, it just dismays us of how economically backward progressive liberal, liberal solutions are with welfare programs and how they just continually harm the black community worse than anything else. And yet blacks remain 97% voter block loyal to it to the Democrat Party. Why is that? Because they've got nothing but hatred and dismay 
from us. And, and, and today, we'll even say, well, we would love to have blacks vote for us, but we just they're angry with us because we want to cut their welfare checks off. Well, that doesn't help. Because they're sti- you're not, still not addressing their underlying needs that have just been festered for decades and generations. So there needs to be a different approach. And I have some good, good black friends that are in conservative uh, causes and politics and whatnot, and I think if we simply changed our approach and begin to talk with these people, but that's also going to mean getting honest about some of conservative policies, things of that nature. Bigger discussion. But uh, why do, again, the simple, simple answer to the question, why do some of these guys uh, still hang on to that? Because they hang on to the conservative tradition in opposition to the liberals. And in doing so, they get really consistent with it. It drives them back into history. And they find themselves defending the Old South more than con- con- uh, criticizing it, in, 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 and many things along the way. That, in my view, creates a lot of unnecessary uh, blind spots and, and, and ignorances, and it puts yourself in a position to defend a lot of things that are impossible to defend for a Christian. What, on a percentage basis, if you had to guess, what percentage of the um, of that position is based on perceptions having to do with, say, with the curse of Ham's line or what God's intent was at Babel. I ask you that because I know uh, a, a, a friend, a much revered and loved missionary, post-millennialist, theonomist, you know, he, he likes to make reference to the fact that, that the tribes in Africa have a strong, a strong prejudice against mixing with other tribes. Well, then I've yeah. got to think about, well, but these are pagan tribes and they don't want to mix with other pagan tribes why should we let pagans determine what's right for society what percentage do you think has to do with these bad biblical arguments or misunderstanding passages whether it has to do with Ham and Canaan or Babel Uh, do you think that's really where it stems from honestly I don't know a lot of the written defenses I read of slavery obviously include all those arguments uh, some of them didn't. Dabney actually kind of distanced himself from the curse of Han arg- Ham argument. He said it does prove there are there's some validity to slavery in general in history, but uh, whether that the Ham was the black race or not, and that you know justified their enslavement, he kind of backed off that a little bit. Uh, there were guys who didn't back off of it at all. Uh, but the modern guys, I don't know. I, I've read some of them who would say that. I've had people send me, hey, haven't you read The Curse of Ham, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, but I, I don't know, you know, if you take somebody who's some, somewhat of a Southern sympathizer, like, say, a George Grant or somebody like that, uh, would he come back and say, yes, Southern slavery was justified because of The Curse of Ham? I don't think he would. I think he would reject that argument. Um, there might be some other guys who... They, they, would base it it on a di- they would base it on a different reading of the law? Uh, some of them would, yeah. I mean, uh, well, I mean, again, this is another thing about the book. One of the defense of slavery tactics was always to say, well, the Bible justifies slavery. Well, if you read the law, you can't deny that. I mean, there's a there's regulation of slavery in there, and there's even the, the part in Leviticus 25, I believe, uh, that allows for the enslavement of foreigners, uh, which was even more intense in their in their society. Um, does that translate then to a justification for what the South was doing? This is this is one of the main reasons I backed up and began reading the Southern law in detail and how it was developed. Now, Bojard recently 
I yes, think, he, I think, he did a I think very he, decent podcast on that. I think he recently promoted the idea that, in effect, slavery under the nation of Israel system was a form of evangelism. It had that effect, yes. But if it could. if a Southern proponent, if a proponent of American slavery was to use that same argument, what would you say? I would say that's not what they did in practice. And, and, and you've got to be very careful saying things like that, too, because you've got to remember who's listening and what, how they're hearing what you say. There will be some people who say, oh, man, thank you. Thank you for saying that. There will be a tiny percentage. And there will be a lot of people saying, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you think slavery is a form of evangelism. And, whoa, wait, wait, wait. That's not what we're talking about. You've got to be very careful. Um, the, the, the slave trade, the, the African slave trade, from its very days, was justified by evangelism. Uh, some of the earliest Portuguese writers, and I quote them in the book, I forget the fellow's name, um, said this. You know, These people are going to be better off. We're taking them out of pagan Africa. and Yes, their, their service is going to be difficult. It's going to be a hard time for them. But they're going to be better off because their souls will be saved. Um, <laughs> they baptized them before they worked them to death. Huh? That was in the fourth. Yeah, um, there's a lot to be said, and again, that ties into the development of the law because they passed the law in 1667 specifically for baptism, because the ma- they 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 justified doing this out of evangelism, but then the masters were hesitant to evangelize them because they thought if they converted, they would no longer be slaves. They could get become freed if they converted to Christ, because at the time, that's how the laws read. You could enslave a heathen, but not a Christian. Mm-hmm. And so they were afraid of this. Well, the, the crown passed an edict in 1667, the, uh, in Virginia anyway, uh, and other states followed quickly, colonies. Uh, that baptism didn't change the status of a slave. And so, okay, there's this collective sigh of relief. The masters could keep their slaves as slaves permanently, and the church could pretend that they were doing this to save souls. Um, But in practice, it never happened that way. And for for all the good that the church talked, as far as we know, there were very few, if any, cases of church discipline for masters who abused their slaves, masters who raped their female slaves, and can go on down the list of cruelties and atrocities. If the church was ever serious about the black man, it would have at the very least disciplined the masters who did those things, but it didn't. Now, do you think that Paul addressed the slave-master relationship? And I heard this argument the other day that there's only three relationships that are really promoted in Scripture. One is the husband-wife, the other is the parent-child, and the other is master-slave. And the response is, is, well, if you call the master-slave relationship inherently wicked, mm-hmm. then you, you're calling Christ a sinner because we're his slaves. Yeah, I mean, that's some equivocation there. I mean, obviously, there's an analogy used in, in our in our servitude to Christ, there's a few, there's a federal lordship type, which was it's the same as you know the the covenant made at Sinai, those kind of things. Uh, that you know, just because there's a type of servitude, and we serve God and we serve our fellow man, just because there's a type of servitude does not therefore justify every form of slavery that's ever existed in human history. Um, now, obviously, there are things to be uh, explained in terms of why Paul says master servants. Serve your master. Well, there was a preponderance of slaves at yeah. that time. What, 70, 80% of the population? Uh, I, 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 even, even taking the worst case scenario where this is Roman slavery, and there may be somebody briefly who, or just, who just come into the church practicing Roman chattel slavery and owns a slave who, at the time, they still think this is a non person. I can kill them anytime I want to if I have to. 
um, that person comes to the church, does Paul excommunicate that person? He doesn't. He he regulates. You know how does? But, but there's explanations for that. I'm going to write in detail in my next book, and I'm not quite ready to put those in in public yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I will say that, in my view, that was never meant to be a uh, a practice for the church or for society, Uh, certainly not permanently. It was, how does the church react when it's thrown into an ungodly society? Mm -hmm. And obviously you have to make, uh, you know, it's, it's just like today. You know, we, we live in a society where mothers want to go abort their child. We're, tra- we're trying to work to pass laws that call abortion murder and where we deal with hesitant politicians and hesitant churchmen because they don't. We live in this thoroughly wicked society where even saying that makes you an outcast. Um, uh, and so we have this whole pro-life system that's funded by millions of dollars. Oh, if we just pass this bill for fetal pain, we've made progress. No, you haven't. You haven't made progress, but and so you know it's. But but how do? You, but if if a law like that gets passed, do you say no? Undo it? No, you you say okay. For the time being, that's a good. That's you know we accept that. Um, uh, how how do you live with that? What happens if you know? I, I just I had a case thrown at me just the other day of a man. Um, who who was a Christ, who was married to a woman he became a christian she didn't and then she later aborted his child and from from what i can tell i don't know all the facts but even even if if it's not right consider this a hypothetical case which i'm sure has happened then he looks at her aborting that child as a case of murder obviously he can't prosecute her for it and uh, but but he he divorced her and I said, that was just grounds for divorce. And I know Christians who came after him and said, mm, you're going to burn in hell. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if I named their names, you would know them. <laughs> you know who they were anyway. Uh, that, this is my reading of this, the case. And if I'm, if I'm wrong and they're hearing me, just consider this a hypothetical case then. Is that just grounds for divorce for a Christian? Um, I know from what I understand, most people looked at him and said, "Well, I can't tell you yes or no, but you're, this is between you and God." Because killing one of your killing your child killing, killing a child killing my child would not be grounds for me to divorce the person yeah. who killed him. Or, or consider the far more common, less controversial case of a woman who's aborted her child and then becomes a Christian later and repents. I mean, she still deserves the punishment for having committed murder or some punishment. Um, but you receive her into the church and you disciple her, and she's a changed soul. Um, but then you, you know, you, you don't say, "Well, okay, we'll just overlook your abortion and pretend like it didn't happen, or we'll, we'll you know, regulate the relationship, or we'll still justify the fact that it goes on because of what you did." No, you say what you did was wrong; it was murder. But you can repent and be restored from that as a, as a Christian. Uh, so, I mean, that's not 100% analogous to this, what Paul was dealing with with slaves in the early church, but it was something that was meant to be abolished when it could, and that's why Paul tells him, if you can get your freedom, get it. And that's why he tells Onesimus and Philemon, he says to Philemon, um, you know, receive him back. Uh, receive him back as a brother. And I, in my view, that's Paul's way of saying this relationship shouldn't be, and you and I both know it. And if he owes you any money, put it on my account. Well, there's a lot of speculation. Yeah. If this, if if this is debt slavery, according to the Old Testament law, I'll pay it. Right. And, and say so he's trying to take away every excuse Philemon has 
for keeping this guy as a slave. I think that's the vision for... So, but, but these views on New Testament and the biblical views of slavery, um, you know, I'm going to develop those much more in detail in the next book. This is necessary ground. You need to read this. You need to be prepared for what's coming and why what's coming is going to come. How many uh, different sources, roughly, how much research and how many different sources did you uh, go to for this book? That's hard to say. Let me see here. I got, what, like 13 pages of... 10-point font, single-space bibliography, one, two, no, what is that, hell? let me see here, 424 to 436, so that's 12 pages of 10-point font, single-space bibliography, and that doesn't include it all because a lot of the original sources that have been scanned online, a lot of, a lot of you know, Dabney, uh, um, the old Southern Presbyterian reviews that have a lot of those guys, um, Palmer, are you anticipating rebuttals? And others. All, all those sources I use, I didn't put in the bibliography. Uh, I, I don't think there will be a written rebuttal like a book. I think there will be some guys that are on the committed white supremacist or segregationist group that will write articles about it, probably. Uh, there are a couple who seem to have fun with that. Um, and there may be people who look at it and say... You know, this is convincing. I, I think there will be reactions. There will be a lot of posts on Facebook about it. And I'm going to try to instigate as many of those as I can to, to get feedback. But I don't think there will be like a book-length response or anything like that. If you in, in terms of the people that disagree with you, that you can still work with on other projects as brothers and those with whom you feel like you just can't, that that are just incorrigible and uh, uh, bigoted and are, you know, is there, a, is there a demarcation? Because I know that, you know, on Reconstructionist Radio, for instance, we've put people who are, who are mm -hmm. categorized as kinists on a pretty short yeah. uh, leash, pardon the expression. Uh, so w what do you think, it, w where is the boundary? Where is, where is someone still, you could still work with him, Maybe he's a defendant of the South. Maybe he wrote his dissertation on Dabney. Maybe you know, uh, you know, um, a guy who is it, for him it really is uh, cultural, and he's thinking in terms of his pro-Southern sentiments in view of the abomination that Washington is, and then he sees that that would have been somehow a, 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 a you know, a relief from that. I don't think it would have because ultimately it would have, because essentially the South became exactly like what it was fighting. No doubt. I think in, in many ways it, it already was, but that's a different story. Um, that, that's kind of a, a broad question. Where do you draw the line with who you can work with and who you can't? Um, I do have some lines. The, the, the standard Kenist argument against interracial marriage, which is actually, it's kind of representative of a broader view of segregation, I think, that is obviously a deal breaker for me. Uh, that has to be discussed, and, you know, if, if there were, especially if you're a Christian leader of some sort. I mean, if you're just a guy on Facebook who's got these opinions, uh, you know, I, I think you're wrong. Uh, I'll, I'll still be, I'll still let you be friends on Facebook and follow my stuff and that kind of stuff. But the moment you become belligerent about the issue, I block you, you're gone. I, I don't have time to waste on that. But if you're a Christian leader and you have, uh, you know, a circle of influence or perhaps an office and you press some of these views, then then I would want to make it, take issue with it. 
Do you anticipate any debates coming out of this? I hope there will be a debate or two come out of this. Um, I haven't. I've thought about it just a little bit. I mean, obviously, the guy who's debated it in the past is Steve Wilkins, but I think that was 20 years ago. I don't know if he's interested in doing that again. Um, there would, you know, it'd be a question of who would else, you debate Doug Wilson? Who else wants to step up? I, I don't know if Doug Wilson would be that at odds with this book or not. I okay. think he's still defended some things in his. Uh, you know, he he departed from his older views. He kind of blamed them on Wilkins, I think, uh, in the old book on the South. And then he rewrote, and he wrote Black and Tan, which he kind of, he strongly mitigated his views. Yeah. I still disagree with him on some things in there, but I don't think he he would find that as an occasion to debate. And I don't think it would make it an interesting debate in regard to this book. The for, for the sake of time, I won't ask you to go off into the question of what should have been done. What I, I'm curious as the book in the book, and if you don't address it in the book, it'll we can this can be an online discussion. Uh, it will unfold over time, and that question is: Is do you address in the book what should have been done? How would you have emancipated or manumitted, uh, uh, you know, over a million? Africans who were illiterate, had no property, mm-hmm. some had no skills, perhaps didn't speak the language. Yeah, that's a major issue, and this is, and it kind of is going to involve a discussion of something that we said we wanted to talk about, and we're, look, look where we're at on time now. Um, and that is the complicence, uh, the example of the North. Uh, the North did emancipate these, usually on something like a 20-year window. And, and I talk about these at length in the book. This is something critics and readers in general, but specifically critics, the suspicious among our readers, need to know is that this book is in detail as hard on the Northern colonies it is, as it is on the South, and, and the church in both sides. Uh, the, 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 there's no... Certainly no worship of Lincoln here or worship of the North or pretense that, oh, the North freed their slaves and it was the evil South. It, no, it was it was a tangled mess. This is a national sin for all Americans. It's a North American sin and, and beyond even. And we detail the sins of Massachusetts and New England. Uh, Rhode Island especially was, was one of the worst and it's rarely talked about. Um, but this is a question I get often, and people will say things like, oh, well, how come you never talk about the, the, uh, the slavery in the North and, and their, complicity, their compliance in the slave trade and all of that? It was all northern ships, after all, that was bringing the slaves to the South and the wealth piled up on the northern shores. And it did. They're absolutely right about that. But my answer to their question is, why aren't you talking about this? Is number one, I do talk about it. And number two, you're simply wrong. The left talks about this, too. Um, the father of black history, Carter Woodson, uh, in the 19-teens and 20s, wrote about black ownership of black slaves. The, the left has paid attention to this issue more than we have. So let's not pretend that nobody's addressing this stuff. They did, and we just don't join the conversation. Um, uh, but anyway, back to the point. The North was was very complicit in this, and I don't agree with the way they emancipated their slaves, but at least they did it. Um, that brings up the issue of, though, then why were the slaves then immediately uh, huddled in ghettos, in poverty, high in crime, and all of these issues? Well, that's where the racism comes in as a separate issue. Because just because they emancipated their slaves, and your question is, well, what do you do with you know, thousands or millions of these guys who are literate and, and have all these problems, have all these challenges ahead of them. 
Uh, well, that's that's part of the problem. Is why did you keep them illiterate? You know, there's no biblical injunction that if you have a slave, you mandate that he stays illiterate. Um, if you're afraid that he's going to read the Bible and want his freedom, well, that's not a bad problem to have. That's what the, if you say you want to evangelize the slaves, as you always did, that's what you should have been doing to begin with, instead of keeping them as slaves forever. You know, and then okay, well, then the day comes and somebody says we need to free the slaves, and you use it as an argument. Oh, I'm sorry, they're ignorant and illiterate. That's your fault. Okay, and and that's going to be judgment on your head the day that they're immediately emancipated by force uh, because you weren't doing your duty for 200 years plus. You know, that's God's judgment on society. That's why when people start asking this in, I don't know, what, 1830 or whatever, well, how can we free the slaves? What's it going to do to society? Well, you know, if you'd have been doing your duty all along like you said you were doing, how many ministers and planners came along and said, oh, we're evangelizing the slaves. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you really did that, then they would prepare, be prepared for freedom, wouldn't they? Well, they didn't. So, so this is it's a little dip, different, difficult question to ask because it presupposes something that shouldn't have to be presupposed. Um, well, obviously, if you could have done everything you wanted to do and say everything you wanted to say in an, in an episode of The War Room, you wouldn't have had to write the book. So read the book. Um, listen, I'm as Southern as the day is long, and I just got my copy. Uh, we're going to be doing audio narration with Joe Salant on uh, Reconstructionist Radio as well. Uh, I think probably a chapter a week will be released. Uh you know, Proverbs said he who gives an answer before he hears is folly and shame to him. And that probably goes for he who gives an answer before he reads. So if this is a topic that is a hot button issue for you, then read the book and and then uh, formulate your question, your honest questions in a civil manner. And they'll be responded to. Uh, but we all know the difference between a, an honest question mm. and basically picking a fight or just wanting to resort to ad hominem attacks. So, you know, but if the body of Christ is going to reform, there's all kind of other tangent and ancillary issues. Again, we go back to the question as we close the episode here. As you're reading this, I haven't even read it yet, but I'm going to be keeping, I know that the things that I'm going to be keeping in the peripheral of my mind is going to be the prison industrial complex and law enforcement feeding that machine and, and, and the, church clergy's complicity in providing moral cover uh, and forestalling the uh, ending of abortion in America. Absolutely. Uh, and so as we, this is a work in progress. This is going to, we're going to be discussing this uh, when we're, re, and we're going to be waiting for the next installment, which is going to be on uh, criminal justice, criminal reform. justice reform. For, and for those who, who maintain that uh, Joel McDermott has, basically abandoned theonomy, um, stick it in your ear. And thank you for joining us, Joel. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And thank you for being here with us on The War Room. Thank you for joining us in The War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by my soul among lions. 